All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and we'll open them to 1 John chapter 5. And this evening we begin this last chapter in John's epistle. It's not going to be too long before we're ready to move on to another study. I don't know yet what that's going to be, but we've got a little bit of time to figure that out. But I can promise you that what we won't do, we won't stop studying the Bible verse by verse. I think that's the best way that it can be done. That's the way it's intended to be taught. I think it's the way that people get grounded in God's Word, and it's, it's a much better method than just skipping around the Bible from topic to topic. I had a conversation with someone just a few days ago, and I made the comment to them that people in Berean know enough that they can recognize when something is not quite right. And it raises the red flags, and they begin to ask questions. And I think that's the response that you get when you, when you take some time to, when people are listening to the Word of God and see how God's Word fits together perfectly. No matter where you go, no matter what book that you're in, you're going to learn something, and you're going to learn how that fits in with the rest of God's Word. So I think it's the right method that we use. And, and I've had folks that have told me that, well, things make better sense now than they did before. Things just really start to fit together because when you skip around in the Bible, you leave a lot of holes in the continuity of what the, what these books teach. And a good example of this is 1 John because what many, many people do is they just pull out certain verses from the book and they'll use those verses and, and they really don't understand the main fundamental points that John is actually trying to get across. And it's with that in mind that we begin this fifth chapter. And tonight we're going to talk about the first statement of the fifth chapter. There is a main point and there is a main argument here. And we're going to discuss that. And you already know probably what that argument would be or the things that John's going to address from the previous sermons. We know that somehow... He's going to bring in these three tests of Christianity to prove that you really have faith. They're going to be found somewhere in this passage that we're going to read. And these opening verses are, are very tightly packed together so that what was loosely stated in the previous four chapters converges into one point, And here in just one just burst, it seems like, John gives us those three tests once again. So that'll be the main topic that we'll discuss as we go through these verses, and it may seem to be redundant to you, but if John hits us once again with this, if the Holy Spirit has led him to emphasize these points again, then surely he has a point that he wants driven home. He wants something that we, want, we are to understand from this. So we're going to discuss the main thing and, uh, in, in, in a little while. I'm not going to get to that first. So let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. In any scripture that we study, there's always going to be a main thought. 
There, there's going to be a main premise that the writer is trying to convey to those that are reading. And there are many sermons that are preached that, uh, from different texts where the preacher actually fails to mention the main point that the author is trying to get across. I was listening to a seminary professor at a seminar, and he was explaining about how to prepare messages from a text, and he chose as his example the conflict between David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And before he began his lecture, he said, whatever you do, don't teach that this text is telling us how we can get rid or overcome the giants that are in our life. Now, if you think back to how many times that you've heard that text of 1 Samuel 17 preached, I would say that 99 times out of 100, that'll be one of the points or even the main point of the sermon as the preacher preaches it. And I'll have to admit to you that at least one time in the last nine years, one time I preached a sermon where I used that point. But I've thought about that text since... uh, I heard this professor talk about it, how often that preachers will choose something, for instance, out of the Old Testament, and they'll preach a sermon from a text that was never really the author's intent. And that's the danger of topical preaching. Now, there's nothing wrong with topical preaching in itself, but when you preach topically, you have to systematically approach that text and give it in its context. And that's the best way for people to understand it because there is a main thought that needs to be taught. Well, that's one of the reasons why we do the verse-by-verse preaching, whether it's topical or whether it's just going straight through a book. We want to consider everything in its context. And I've heard criticism that people make, oh, well, you use too many scriptures. You use too many scriptures to support the exposition of the text. Well, I do like to use a lot of scripture. And the reason that I do that is because uh, we don't want to isolate certain parts of the Bible from other parts. I've found that the Bible is its own best illustrator, and the Bible is its own best interpreter. And that's why I don't tell a lot of tear-jerking stories. I don't tell you a lot of syrupy stories as I preach because I think the Bible is capable of explaining itself. Now, there's nothing wrong with illustrations or anything like that, but that's not what we want to spend all of our time doing. Now, as you look at the title of this message, you can see that somewhere there's going to be a story here. I mean, there's going to be a little vignette of some kind to tell you why I chose this particular title for this sermon, or these three sermons that I'm going to uh, preach on this text. And I'm not going to tell you why tonight that I chose the title. That comes up next week. But I do want to come back to this thought that there is a main point to a passage, and you can trust me, we're going to get to that main point. But I also think it's important for us to note that many passages do have secondary applications. And because the author has raised the point in the, in the language that he uses, it is honest and it's fair for us to evaluate the secondary points. And this is what we find in the first verse of chapter 5. And we've studied John for these, well, it's been over a year now, and we're aware of the differences between Paul and John when they approach theological arguments. We've studied Paul quite extensively going through Ephesians Ephesians and Philippians and and, um, and then the other many, many references that we, that we make to the Apostle Paul. And we know that Paul is very logical in his approach to his arguments. I mean, he'll give his theological position, then he'll go point by point by point explaining why that position is true. But we've noticed as we read John 
that he's a different type of writer. And sometimes we're tempted to think that he doesn't deal very much with theology. He, he favors a brief approach to theology part, and then he gives us a long practical application or, or give it, gives it to us right away. So sometimes the theological points that John states are assumed. He thinks, or he's writing as if, these things are already understood by the reader. They're things that he shouldn't have to explain. They're elementary enough that he doesn't spend time just going through that and trying to prove the theology behind those statements. And this is what we find in verse number 1 of this text. This is what he wrote. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now, the main point, which we're going to get to a little bit later in the, in the other, end of this sermon and the other two parts, is they are these previous tests that we've learned about, about real saving faith. And so here John tells us that two of these, two of these tests, the understanding of the doctrine of Christ and the test of Christian love, that proves whether a person has really been born of God. If you have the new birth in Christ, then the, the Spirit is going to help you to understand the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And he's going to help you to love your brother as you should. That's just inherent in becoming a Christian. And then later, John is going to add most emphatically that third test where he tells us that we must keep God's commandments. But buried in the first part of this verse, in verse number one, is a very theological concept. It's a very important concept for us to, to understand. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention it to you. If only for the fact that most of Christianity does miss it or ignores it or even denies it. And it's of such importance that it really causes us to understand how God works with man in the gospel. Now, have anybody, anybody here identified that yet, what I'm talking about? I don't expect that you would. And the reason that you don't is because we're reading this text in English. And it doesn't indicate the verb tenses that are used in the Greek language. Now, the English, I will say this, the English and the Greek are not in conflict with one another, not at all. It just means that we have to dig a little bit deeper to see what John is saying here. And we find there is a secondary point. Now, there's some English translations that pick up on this, and they do make the point. Now, if you look at that first part again, he says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born again. So is it John's intent here to say that if a person believes that he has experienced the new birth? Well, yes, he says that. And if we wanted to go on and finish these first five verses and and use that thought, we're not going to run afoul of any doctrine because that's exactly what he says. But we would also miss something very important here. It is not John's intent to make a point about the order salutis of salvation. That means the order of salvation. But in the language that he uses here, he does that very thing. Because what you see in the English is the word is. Is this person who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But in the Greek language, that's in the imperfect tense. And it has the meaning has been born of God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God or is already born of God. Now, is that a very significant distinction? Well, in fact, it is because it tells us that salvation is the product of God's work and not man's. Salvation is distinctly a work of God. 
And a person does not add anything to the work that God does in saving us. And so the order that John gives here concerning salvation is not that a person believes and that he's born of God as if belief is the cause of the new birth, but he's rather saying that the new birth is the cause of a person believing. But don't misunderstand that because he's not saying that you can have people walking around that are born again, but they have not yet believed in Christ. This is not a statement about chronology. In other words, it's not, it's not uh, uh, about the, the order of time in salvation, but it's about the logical order of salvation. And that, that logical order is that God works first in us, that God enables us to believe. And, and the work of God, when he does his work, always results in that belief. So you have regeneration, repentance, and faith that occur simultaneously. You don't have any of those without the others. But logically, regeneration has to come first because you have a dead man believing in other, in other, if you don't uh, take it in that way. So you have a man that's dead in trespass and sin who has no spiritual life and reacting to the gospel when he's dead. And that is the position of most of the evangelical world. Now, the problem here is that there aren't any Bible scholars standing on either side of this issue that's not aware, that are not aware of this verb tense in 1 John 5, 1. But there are many who ignore it and many who don't want to talk about it. So John is saying that a person that believes does believe because an action by God has taken place previously in his heart. This is God's work. It's initiated by God. And because of that action, the person believes. Jesus states it another way in John 6, 44. He said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he's telling us that no man can come to the Father unless the Father does something first. The Father has to draw him. And you notice in the last part of the verse that it affirms that those who are drawn are raised up in the last day. And that simply means that they're going to be resurrected, which in turn means they're saved. And so the drawing of the Father is always effectual. It always accomplishes its purpose. So what Jesus is talking about then is nothing short of regeneration. It's the new birth. And it fits perfectly with what he told Nicodemus. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he places born again as first and then seeing as second. So what we have here is John and Jesus on the same wavelength. A person believes, a person that does believe has been born of God and that believing occurs because of the previous action taken by God. Now, what does that have to do with all of this? Well, John has made a distinct, assumed theological point in the course of this larger argument. I mean, the people that he was writing to wouldn't argue about this. They wouldn't argue like we do because they would be seeing it in Greek. They would be seeing it in the language that they understood, and they would understand the verb tenses here. And they would see that imperfect verb tense, and they would understand what John's saying. So, in fact... John is so settled on this that by the end of the first century, he doesn't even offer proof of this theological point. He just assumes they'll get it and they'll understand it without any further explanation because the language of the New Testament makes it clear. So that helps us to understand why we go to other places of Scripture to substantiate points of doctrine. If we were dealing with that text in John 6:44, and that's what I was talking to you about tonight, and I was going to talk to you about the effectual drawing of the Holy Spirit in salvation, you know what I would do? 
I would turn to 1 John 5, 1 and read this text because it says the very same thing. So that's a long introduction to get us to the main thing of this part of Scripture. We don't have time to make all the secondary points, but it's very important that we do this one because it affects our understanding of how a man comes to Christ in salvation. So John is telling us, as the rest of the Word of God does, that it's not by man's input. We do have input in salvation, but it only comes when God has done his work. We don't cooperate with God's grace in order to be born again, but we're born again in order that we may cooperate with God's grace. He's always first in this, in this uh, equation. So it's a fine theological distinction. It, it really colors your approach to different areas of Scripture and makes sense out of things that might otherwise seem to be contradictory. So let's go to the main intent of the passage. And it's not that John doesn't want us to get that other point. If it was true, if that was true, he said, no, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to get into that, then he would have worded it some other way. He could have done it some other way. So these, these things then, everything that John has written here, as he comes back to this main point, is to prove this, the, the theme of the epistle, which is if you know these things, if you understand the things that are written, if you believe them, if you do what he says, then you can know that you have eternal life. And so we're looking at that evidence continually as we go through 1 John. Now, I have three areas that to cover in the first five verses, and you can see from the length of that introduction, we're not going to get very far. So we're just going to deal with, the, with one of these points tonight. And we'll start with this one, the fellowship of believers. The fellowship of believers. I've often spoken to you about what a joy it is to have a diverse congregation. I grew up in the South in Kentucky. Some people don't call it the South, Dalton, but I do. That's uh, that's South. It's lower. It's south of the Mason-Dixon line. So, uh, in, in when I grew up there, there was no racial diversity in the church. Now, at that time, I don't know. When I was growing up, I I don't know that I'd ever actually met any Asians. I was never I was never around any Hispanics. And there was definitely, as you well know, a, a division between blacks and whites in the South. You know, our church was never against diversity. We, we, were never, we would never have refused membership to a person because of their race or anything like that if we were confident that they believed in Jesus Christ. If they knew him as Savior, then we were not going to exclude someone from our congregation because of their race. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, it's just, it's just the way that it was, is that they, the races just didn't mix. And so I, I don't know if I'm even politically correct when, when I refer to uh, uh, African Americans or blacks, and maybe, maybe a royal could help me out on that, or whether I'm doing the right thing or not. And I certainly do not intend to, uh, to uh, hurt anybody's feelings or, or uh, put anybody down in any way. I'm just telling you what it was like when I grew up, and royal probably knows the same thing in many ways. Uh, our churches just did not have diversity. So I remember in uh, the early 1960s, the civil rights movement, and when they passed the civil rights legislation in 1964, I was in grade school. I know it's hard to believe that I could be that old, uh, but I was in grade school in 1960, and our school became integrated. Now, I, I had one black child, one black kid in my class. 
and we were friends, but we were competitors. Now, you probably wouldn't recognize or don't know this about me, but when I was in, when I was in elementary school, I was the fastest kid in the school. I was. I was the fastest kid in the school. But this black kid, what, what do we call him, Royal African-Americans? I don't know. But uh, he, he, was a, he, was a, he was a black young man. And, and we were friends, but we were competitors. And we would get into races, and they were really, really close. But the honest truth is, I had just a slight edge on him, just a slight edge. Now, you, you say, you don't recognize that about me today because the only thing I'm fast at now is getting to the dinner table, and that, that makes me slow at everything else. So, but all of these years later, you know, I think about that. All these years later, when growing up with, with, with that kind of uh, division between people, that I come to Berean Baptist Church, and we have a church that has great diversity. And I like it. I like being friends with, with many different types of people. I really liked being around Joe's. I mean, it was, it's, it was great to have Joe's as a friend. I like Catherine, Korean, being in our church, the Arlens and the Ricos and, and the, and the uh, what's your name? Uh, Hernan, <laughs> Enriquez. <laughs> See, I, and, uh, you know, sometimes you wonder, who, who is the odd man here? Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one that's, that's different from everybody else. But we don't look at it that way, do we? We don't really look at it who's different because we are all together in something. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about here. Now, you remember when Joe's came that he was very concerned about whether he would be accepted in his congregation. And uh, he just came to check things out and didn't know quite how it would be. But as, as he found out, as we found out, how could you not like Joe's? I mean, how could you not like him? But a bigger question than that is why in the church do we like each other? Why do we come together? Why, why do we get together with our different backgrounds? And we have different customs. Most of you like garlic, which is hard for me to forgive, and you eat that in your, in your food. I had to learn to live with Democrats when I came here, and that was very difficult. So what is it? What is it that pulls us together into the church and makes us civil to one another, and even more than that, makes us love one another? Well, you can answer that by going to another scripture that's written by Paul. And Paul was at the crossroads of different cultures. There were huge distinctions in people. There was no barrier like the one between Jews and Gentiles. Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews. But it even went deeper than that because within the Jewish uh, within the uh, Jewish people, uh, the men considered the women to be very, very much inferior to them. So you had those divisions. And then in the Roman world, it was the Romans against everybody else because they were the conquerors and everybody else were the barbarians. And then you break it down within the empire and you have the free men versus the slaves. So everywhere you turn, there are distinctions, there are divisions, and there's hatred. And I'm using this word correctly, there was intolerance. But Paul makes a grand statement about Christians, and he says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3 verse 11, he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Now, there you find out what it is in Christianity that removes all the class distinctions. This is what levels the playing field between us all. It puts us all on equal footing. Let me state it to you this way. We are on equal footing because birth equals brotherhood. Now, can you agree with that? Birth equals brotherhood. If you're from the same parents, then you can get along with your brothers and sisters. Now, usually that's the case. Now, some of you have young children, and, and uh, they don't always get along. They're fighting all the time, squabbling all the time, and you did the very same thing when you were young. Sometimes we don't act like brothers and sisters, but I think we're all agreed that a general rule is that we're family. And so I have no, if you're, you're in your family, you tell your brothers and sisters, I have no problem accepting you, and I know you have no problem accepting me. We love each other because we're in the same family. And if you say that, you've just hit John's statement in verse number one like a hammer squarely on the head of a nail. He says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. So the reason that there's love amongst all the diversity is that we have something in common that's different. It's beyond the earthly. It's beyond all fleshly differences. It's beyond the skin color, beyond the ethnicity, beyond habits and customs. We have the same parent. We have the same father, God. And he's given birth to a spiritual family. So as Christians, we have birth in common. We're born of God. And if you're born of God, then you love all others that are born of him. And so you can go anywhere around the world, and you can love people that are also Christians, no matter who they are, because you have the same fathers they have. Or you can have the whole world come to you, just like we have in Brian Baptist Church. People from everywhere, and we gladly fellowship with them. Any believer that walks through those doors, we don't care where they come from. If they believe in Jesus Christ, they are a brother and a sister and their family. And if that's not real to you, and if the thing that you like to do is keep people at a distance, maintain the distinctions, whether they're racial or social or economical, if that's what you do, then there's a good chance that you're not really a child of God because God's people don't act that way. Well, I would confess that there, there are some people that would defang so to speak, the teaching here in this scripture by misunderstanding the hymns that are in this passage. Now, I'm not speaking of hymns that we sing, but I'm talking about hymns as in pronouns. There are three hymns in this passage, and the second hymn that many people say refers to Christ. So you could read this in this way. Everyone that loves him, that is the Father that begat, loveth him, that's Christ, also that is begotten of him, the Father. So it reads, everyone that loves the Father that begat, loveth Christ, that begat, loveth Christ also that is begotten of the Father. And that's a true statement. It's a true statement, but it's not the main point. It's not what John's trying to say. We should read it like this. Everyone that loveth him, the father that begat, loveth him, our brother, that is begotten of him, the father. So you read it, everyone that loveth the father that begat, loveth him, or loveth our brother that is begotten of the father. You see, we get truth out of both statements. Take either one, you have the truth, but there's always a main truth. There's always a main thing that John is saying. And the thing that fits this passage is that we have love for our brothers and sisters because we have the same father. 
So here's another way that John makes that point about love. Another way that he shows an indicator of true Christianity. We will love our brothers. And if there's barriers that keep you apart, then you're not acting like members of the same family. If you don't act like members of the same family, there's a good chance that you're not in the same family. So where does that lead us? Well, it could take us into all different kinds of areas. We could, we could talk about lying, and we could talk about gossip. Do you do that with family members? I mean, do you spend your time tearing down your brother? I mean, somebody that you grew up with, you, you spend your time tearing down your brothers and your sisters? Do you tear down the person that you grew up with and you shared the same table with? That happens in families, doesn't it? But what do we say? That's abnormal. That's not the way that families act. You feel sorry for somebody that can't get along with their brothers and sisters. That's a sad family. Well, God is our Father, and he does not tolerate family squabbles. And he doesn't because that's an indicator of a lack of love. It's like having an imposter come and sit at your table. He doesn't look like your kid. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, act like your kid. He doesn't smell like your kid or anything else. And I'm afraid that there are some people that are in the church that aren't really in the family. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So I think there's some people in the church that are going to hear those words because they love tattling, they love carrying rumors, they like talking bad about one another. They're imposters that have come to sit at the Lord's table. And God's going to separate them out in the end because not, they've not been born of God. There's one author who put it this way. He said, what John is talking about is not the general life about us, the life of human beings, nor is he talking about family life. What he's really talking about is the divine family, the family of God. If everyone loves the God who brought about our new birth and our faith and made us his children, we will love those that have had a similar experience. So there's the answer. That's the answer to why this church loves being together. It's why we love worshiping together. It's why we love rejoicing together. It's why we like sorrowing together. It's because we have the same father, the same birth, the same nature. And according to John, that is a test of God's divine life in us. Well, I want to make one other further, uh, one further point here uh, tonight. And I don't want to throw a wet blanket over everything that I've just said, but I do need to make this point. The second point is that brotherhood does not equal blanket approval. Now, almost every commentator that you read will begin, the modern commentators at least, they'll begin their discussions of chapter 5 with some sort of a statement about ecumenicalism. Now, I don't know if everyone understands uh, that term. Uh, My wife tells me I use too many words that people don't understand. Uh, Ecumenicalism or ecumenicism or ecumenism, those are all the same thing to choose which one you want. It basically means breaking down denominational barriers in order to promote unity among Christians. And the ecumenical movement's main concern is to remove any doctrine that divides us, and many times, even if it's a barrier of truth, they want to tear down that barrier. Now, I admit that there is a certain amount of ecumenicalism that is tolerable. For example, I I can fellowship with some Christians that I disagree with, and and if I'm convinced that they know the Lord, if if I'm convinced that their faith is genuine, I can fellowship with them because they believe the truth of the gospel. But I put a limitation on that fellowship 
when it begins to compromise the doctrinal integrity of the church. You see, what can happen is that people can hold doctrinal errors, and they're still saved. But it's not good for us to bring people into the membership of the church still holding their onto certain doctrinal errors because it begins to undermine the truths that we preach, and that's not good for the unity of the body. And that doesn't mean that we hate them. It doesn't mean that we doubt their salvation. But it does mean that in order to be a member of the Baptist church, you have to believe Baptist doctrine. And better said, Bible doctrine, because we believe that they're one and the same. So that's important that we maintain doctrinal unity. Now, when you, when you talk about Baptists, I mean, I've, t- I've told you many times, and I'm going to bring this up again in a few weeks, that we have our a Baptist name on the sign outside because that defines who we are, where we are. But many people don't know just by what's written on the sign exactly where we are because you have Baptists that have a lot of different beliefs. You have some Baptists that believe you can have women pastors. And, and some of them wouldn't know salvation by grace if it, if it reached up and bit them. They don't know anything about it. See, when we talk about Baptists, we're not talking about Baptists from 1960. We're talking about Baptists from A.D. 33. We're going to go all the way back to the time of Christ. And, and, and all of this church history distills into the doctrines that we preach from the pulpit. Things like that first statement of, of John 5. But there are other doctrines that people hold, like uh, believer's baptism versus infant baptism and ordinances versus sacraments. Those are some doctrines that will compromise the integrity of the church if you don't teach them right. Now, do we think that everybody that teaches differently on baptism and everybody that teaches differently about the church or everybody that teaches differently about uh, ordinances versus sacraments, does that automatically mean they're not a saved person? Well, absolutely not. I think some of them, uh, many of them are. And, and I, I think that um, there's many in the Baptist church that aren't saved. So it's not whether you're in the Baptist church that makes the difference about whether you're saved or not, but it does make a difference about fellowship and maintaining doctrinal integrity. For instance, if I know that uh, a church, may have, let's take a Presbyterian church, for instance, if they hold to and actually do believe the Westminster Confession of Faith, then I know that they're going to be doctrinally sound on salvation. They will believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, just like we do. And so what I say, are Presbyterians that believe that saved? Oh, absolutely they're saved. Of course they are. And anybody else who believes salvation by, gri- by grace, in, uh, by faith in Christ alone, that is a saved person, no doubt about it. Well, there are others that are in various denominations then that are saved. There are some that are in non-denominational churches that are Christians and they are in the family of God. And I believe that we ought to love them. But what we can't do is give them blanket approval. Let me give you an example. You take what Jesus said to the seven churches of Asia. Now, some of them were having very, very serious problems. Now, he didn't say to any of them that that you're not my children, you're not saved. They were churches. Now, they were doing some wrong things, and uh, they were in danger of losing their status as the Lord's churches, and they got a scathing rebuke from Jesus. And I'm sure that he would not have said to the other churches, well, it's okay, just accept their errors. No, he didn't say that. He said to those churches, clean up your act. Get it right. Get the doctrines right. Well, one other other comment that I'll make along those lines, 
that Berean Baptist Church is not a denominational church. We're an independent Baptist church. We're not in a denomination. And there's nothing wrong with being non-denominational because there is only one church. There's only one true church, and it's always in agreement with the original New Testament church. Denominational churches, for the most part, have deviated in some way. And so they become factionalized. And that's why you have all these various denominations because they don't believe the same things. They've they've been factionalized over these different doctrines of, of Christianity. So you have many denominations. So there's nothing wrong if you say that a person is non-denominational because that's what the, what the church is. But that's not the same as saying interdenominational. Non-denominational and interdenominational are not the same things. Interdenominational people believe in ecumenicalism. They're the ones that want to tear down those barriers and take away some of these things that are taught by the Apostle John, some very clearly taught doctrines and by the other apostles that help us know who true Christians are. Now, I'm going to stop there at uh, this, this part of the message. Some of you might not agree with what I've said tonight, and that's okay because you've been wrong before. But there's a, uh, there, there is a convergence here. There is a convergence here of three tests that John has discussed in the first four chapters. Uh, we, and we see them coming to a focal point. In these five verses, in the opening five verses of 1 John, the first two are in that first verse, the doctrines of Christ and that we are to love our brothers and sisters. He says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to look into your word tonight. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to very seriously consider what the Apostle John says. Uh, This is such an important topic about loving one another. And we just pray, Lord, that we would have that right kind of love, that we would not, not have anything that separates us other than the truth of God's Word. If people don't believe the truth, we have to separate. But if they're believers in Jesus Christ and they're in our same fellowship, they're in our, in our church body, help us to really love one another as we should. Lord, be with us as we leave this place. And thank you for each one who's come tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.